back with you this morning and to, uh, to be in worship with you. Uh, <clears throat> the other day I was, um, I was driving. We, we'd been on a, on a road trip and the other day I was driving and I, um, I was, in the, we was on a four-lane road, two lanes this way, two lanes that way, um, and I was in the left-hand lane and I was driving and there was a car. I was coming up on a car that was in the right-hand lane and the car had turned on its uh, left blinker. Um, so naturally, I presumed that the, the car was going to move to the left. And as I continued to approach the car, it didn't move to the left. Um, it just kept in the right-hand lane with its left-hand blinker on. And so I, I was kind of cautious, right, because I wasn't exactly sure what this person and individual had in mind. And as I continued to make progress towards the car, it became evident that this car had no intention of moving over to, into the left-hand lane, but at one point had purposefully and intentionally turned on their blinker to go left, and I presume went left, but it still remained on and continued to blink, causing confusion and angst and consternation to all other drivers like myself. So I uh, approached the, uh, the, the vehicle, and moved past it with great ease, and all was right in the world. <laughs> you know, I, I share that with you because we're in this series called The Mixtape, and each week we're looking at some of the great promises and great passages of Scripture that have been meaningful to our church family that you submitted. And sometimes, and at some point in your journey or in the journey of a Christian, some of these great truths and promises and passages from God's Word have been meaningful and have moved us in the direction of faith. And yet, I wonder if sometimes they don't end up being like a blinker that's just been left on. Because we see them on our coffee mugs and we see them on our calendars and we see them on t-shirts and they're great, wonderful, mag magnificent, staggering promises of God. And yet sometimes for the people of God, the very promises of God can no longer lead to action. And I don't want that to be the cause, I don't want that to be the case for us and for our church. I, I want, again, this morning for us as we engage a passage about the very faithfulness of Almighty God, that it has a fresh impact on our hearts and our minds and our lives. And I trust that you want that as well. So will you join me as I pray and ask God for his spirit's help as we seek to study his word together this morning. Father, we come to you because you are the author of your word. We believe your word to be authoritative. We believe your word to be the ultimate authority for life and for godliness. And now we come and submit ourselves to the authority of your word. 
And Father, we pray that your spirit will open our hearts and our minds and our lives to have a fresh understanding of who you are this morning. For if you do not use the words of a mere man, we will not be able to hear from you. And so we long to hear from you. So will you please speak? We come in humble expectation in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you have a Bible, I want to invite you to turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3, this is not a book of the Bible that is easy to find, nor is it one that is studied all that often, nor is it the most encouraging book of the Bible. It is actually found uh, after Jeremiah and before Ezekiel in the Old Testament. If you don't have a Bible and you would like to follow along, which we would love for you to be able to do, uh, you can find this reading on page 672 of the Pew Bible that's in front of you, or you can pull out your mobile device of choice and just Google Lamentations chapter 3, and it will show up eventually. As you're turning there, uh, I would like to thank uh, Dave Selness and Travis Rosinger and Zach Marino for their faithful teaching over these past three weeks while I've uh, been away, and it's just been a great privilege to be able to have them feed our church so well and serve God so faithfully, so I'm thankful to those men. I'd also like to just let you know that uh, many of you have been asking about this, a number of the strategic initiatives and things that have been happening around the church. And I uh, posted a blog on our church blog. I wrote a blog just giving some brief updates. And so I would like to commend that to you uh, for your reading uh, maybe this afternoon. I would not prefer you to do it during the service. And yet if this sermon goes terribly bad, then that might be a better use of your time. I recognize that. So well, I commend that to you and trust your wise judgment. Lamentations chapter 3, what I'll do is read the first 33 verses. Uh, that will not be our primary text. Our primary text will be three verses uh, or four verses, um, but I think it's helpful for us to get the context. So will you join me as I begin reading in Lamentations chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old. He has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target of his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mocked me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. And so I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. And yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great compassion, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. 
I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to the one who would strike him and let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will, sh he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. Let's pause there. This morning we come to this passage. Our primary text will be the great promises from verses 19 through verses 21. Great is thy faithfulness, or actually through verse 24. Great is thy faithfulness. And when we come to this wonderful promise, a promise that all of you know in songs that we have sung, and yet we come, and it comes into, and this promise is actually made by Jeremiah, or this, this, this great confession is actually made by Jeremiah in the realities of his life, in the realities of his life. And so this morning, we look at this, and the first thing I want to draw your attention to, there's two primary things. One is this, that life is hard. And second is that God is good. First, that life is hard. This was the case for Jeremiah. In the book of Lamentations, Jeremiah is describing the downfall and destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 586 BC. He has watched the destruction in works for decades. In the 15, year, 15 to 20 year period prior to the downfall of Jerusalem, there was constant assaults on the city until finally it fell. Jeremiah, scholars suggest, was probably writing this book about 10 years after the events of the fall of Jerusalem. And it's comprised of a series of poems, five poems, describing the catastrophe and the catastrophic loss of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple of God where the very presence of God was with his people. The stones of the temple and the walls were crushed and fallen in and rubble. And I, look, I, I get frustrated just looking, walking through our lobby and just going, why, why is this taking so long? Why is, this, why is all this construction in our church taking so long? How much more? When the place was the, that was the very city of God the place that was the very presence of God in the temple now has been burned, now is in rubble, now is in ashes, and this is where Jeremiah has been. Lamentations was not the original title for these writings. Lamentations was a name that was actually given to this particular book by the Greek translators who came after the exile and no longer knew how to speak Hebrew, and so they gave the title Lamentations. But the original Hebrew title was taken from the first words of chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 4 in Hebrew, and it's the word how. How in the world could this have ever happened? How in the world would God allow something like this to take place where the Babylonians came and ransacked the city and took the people away, and now we're left with God's 
temple in utter, complete destruction. And this is Jeremiah. And now he's, we find him here in chapter 3 complaining. He's complaining about this journey. He's complaining. And he says, I'm a man who is under the rod of the Lord's wrath. That's what he says in verse 1. I'm a man who knows the very rod of the wrath of the Lord. He says, and then I've come, I've walked in this darkness in, in verses eight and nine. He says, and he has, when I come to him and I try to go to him in prayer, even when I call out for help, he shuts out my prayer and he has barred my way he, he, with blocks of stone and he has made my path. Even when I do the right thing and come to God in prayer, God has blocked my call. He's blocked me from his presence. You know what it feels like? He says in verse 10 and 11, it feels like God is, it feels like he's a bear. It feels like he's a lion and waiting and hiding. And as I was walking the journey, he just jumped out and he mauled me and just left me there. I am, I, you know what? I've been target practice for God. Look, look he says, I have been a target for his arrows and he has pierced my heart with an arrow from his quiver. You know what? I have forgotten what it is to be happy. I have forgotten what prosperity looks like. That's what he says. Because life is hard. And it's against this dark backdrop of the realities of his life that Jeremiah says, great is your faithfulness. He doesn't say this on the happiest of happy days. He says this against the dark backdrop of the very temple of Almighty God and the city of Almighty God laying in rubble and he says in the midst of this, great is thy faithfulness. Have you ever felt like this? Have you ever felt that life was just wave after wave of difficulty and challenge and hardship? Have you ever felt like you, at every turn, were facing resistance and pushback and criticism as if you're running into the wind? Have you ever felt that every, you need every single ounce of all of your energy just to make it through the day? Have you ever felt like you're carrying a backpack of burden and that at any moment your knees may buckle from out under you? Have you ever felt like Jeremiah and said, I am the laughing stock of my people and quite frankly, I've forgotten what happiness feels like? I, I have. And you know, the, tenants, the place where I have a tendency to go when I'm feeling in these, in, in these moments. And then I start to look out and I realize tomorrow's coming. I go, I barely, I can barely make it up to my bed for today. How am I ever gonna be able to face tomorrow? And then there's another tomorrow after that. Like how, how am I gonna be able to do this? And I begin to question what will become, what will become of my children? What will they believe? Will they be walking in the way of righteousness? What, what will happen? What will become of my health? What, what will become, will, 
Will I go blind? Will I end up deaf? Will I lose all of my memories that seem to be so precious now? Who will take care of me? What will become of my marriage? Will we always laugh and play and pray and talk in peace? Will we be there for our children? Will, there, will we be there for one another? Or will it somehow take a turn and we'll be sad and strained for 30 or 40 more years? What will tomorrow be like and tomorrow and tomorrow? What will become of the church? What will tomorrow bring or next Sunday or a year from now or 10 years from now? Will we still be here? Will we still be winning the lost and standing for righteousness and sending more and more missionaries out to unreached people groups and planting more churches and making more disciples? Will we, will we be worshiping with a zeal for the glory of Almighty God? What will tomorrow bring? Will we have strength to live with whatever comes tomorrow? Will we live well and wise, even joyfully, no matter what God brings our way? Do you, you know what I want in those moments? When buffeted by the realities of life and questioning what's coming in the days that are to come, you know what I want? I want to feel the strength I will need tomorrow now. That's what I want. I want to feel what I will need tomorrow right now. That's what I want. So that I can somehow know that it's all gonna be okay, that what's coming down the pipe is something I'll be able to handle. And as I was processing this and thinking about these things, I came across this quote, and it was clarifying and challenging to me from Pastor John Piper. Today's mercies do not include strength for tomorrow. They include faith that tomorrow's unseen mercies will be sufficient for tomorrow. Today's mercies will not give me the strength for tomorrow's realities. Today's mercy is that I will have the faith that God will actually provide the mercies that I need for tomorrow when I need them and that those mercies will be sufficient for the challenges that I will face tomorrow. I wonder if this is challenging to you as it is to me. Because you know what I want for, for, for us this morning? You know, my prayer has been for you this morning is that this morning when you leave this place, you will have greater faith that God will give you the mercies for tomorrow when you need it and you will have confidence that those mercies will be sufficient for the challenges that await. That has been my prayer. You see, and the question then is, how can I have greater faith that God will actually provide the mercies I need when I need them and those mercies will be sufficient? Well, the writer of Lamentations 3 says, this I bring to mind. This I bring to mind. What does he bring to mind? That against the backdrop of the realities of the hardness and difficulty of life, God is good. God is good. God is good. 
for th- I want to draw out three reasons why we can believe that God is good. The first is this. God is good because of what he will not do. God is good because of what he will not do. Verse 22, he says, Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. Jeremiah calls to mind in this verse two significant characteristics about the God of the Bible. And then he applies them to his current situation. The first is this, the great love of God, the loving kindness of God, the covenant love of God, the hesed love of God. This is the love, the greatest love of God. There is this steadfast love of God, he says. There is this covenant love of God. And actually, um, the word is actually plural, so it's steadfastnesses. Just because it's, it's hard for us to be able to understand the depth and the richness of what is trying to be communicated by the writer. He's trying to say, you have to, do you know, it's the multidimensional covenantal love of Almighty God. This is what he's trying to get at. And he says, we, because of his multidimensional covenant keeping love, that's what he's communicating. So he brings this out. And then he says, then he talks about compassions, the compassions of God, or the mercies of God. It is a word that is intended to be able to invoke a mother's love for her children. Mothers, you understand this. You know what it is to have been in bed at night and to have shed tears on behalf of of your children. You would have done anything if you could only take their place and change their circumstances. You know what it is to have this compassion for your children. Young mothers, you know what it is to be up in the middle of the night with your young children crying and to have nursed them and taken them into your arms and to have comforted them and to rub their back. You've sung lullabies to them and kissed them and hugged them and reassured them of your love. Mothers know what it is to sit nervous in the seats before a performance or a spelling bee or in the stands on the side of the football game, the football field, filled with nerves. You've been there with your children when they've been hurting. This is the compassions of God, of Almighty God. We have this multidimensional, deep, rich, covenantal love of Almighty God coupled with his deep, rich compassion for those who are his children. And he says, these people were God's people. They were in rebellion. Jeremiah, if you read the book of Jeremiah, you find that Jeremiah's ministry, he was called the weeping prophet because he proclaimed and he proclaimed and he proclaimed the, to the people of God for them to repent and turn to God. And Israel did not listen. Israel did not repent. Israel instead mocked him and they mocked God and they laughed at God and they ignored Jeremiah. And now they've been taken captive into Babylon They deserved to be consumed. They deserved to be punished. They deserved to be rejected, but they were not consumed. Why? Because of the covenantal love of Almighty God, because of the deep, rich, multidimensional love that God has made 
towards his people and because of his compassions for his people. And God will not consume his people because he promised that he would not. And the Lord's compassion for his children has not reached its end. There is no end of God's compassion for those who are his children. He continues on and on and on. His compassions for those who are his people. That's what he says. His, it never comes to an end. God does not treat his people as their sins deserve. And God does not treat us as our sins deserve. But God is good because he does not treat us as our sins deserve. But on the cross, he sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life. And on the cross, Jesus bore the true rod of God's wrath so that you and I, no matter how difficult our circumstances are, can know that we will not be consumed, that it will not be the end, that it will not be over because he has promised that he will not consume you and his compassions never, his mercies never reach their limits. They never come to an end. God is good because of what he will not do to us, which is to consume us because of what his son did on the cross. Therefore, we can go into our Monday recognizing that God is good because of what he will not do to us, which is consume us and treat us as our sins deserve. And that God is good because of what he will do. Because of what he will do. Verse 23, they are new every morning. His compassions, his mercies are new every morning. My my, as I mentioned, my natural tendencies is to want the mercies for tomorrow right now. Because I want to be sure, Right? because I want to know the strength that I'm, I see the challenge. I see the difficulty. I see the resistance. And what I want is that strength. I want to feel that right now. But that doesn't seem to be how God works, does it? Doesn't seem to be how God operates. You remember in Exodus chapter 13, God's people are wandering in the wilderness and they're hungry and they want food and so Moses is there and he's praying and God says, I'm gonna give you bread from heaven. It's called manna. They called it manna. And he gave them instructions. Do you remember the instructions? Go out each morning and collect the bread that you will need for that particular day. Don't take any more. Just take what you need. Well, some of those folks, they went out and collected the bread, but they wanted to make sure that they had bread for tomorrow as well. And so they collected more than what was their share. And when they woke up the next morning, do you, know what, do you remember what happened to that bread? It, it was rotten and it was filled with maggots. That's gross. Why? Because he says, listen, I said I'll give you what you need for each day. So what I want you to do is trust me for what you need for each day. I'm not gonna give you what you need for two days from now or two years from now or two what, decades from now. What I'm gonna give you is what you need now. Because if I give you what you need for next week or in two weeks, you might actually think that you did it on your own. You might actually think that you can do life on your own strength rather than needing 
to depend upon my goodness and my kindness and my love and my compassion for all those who are my people. And he says, I need you to trust me that I will give you what you need when you need it. Are you familiar with the story of Corey Ten Boom? Does that name ring a bell for any of you? She was a woman along with her father and some other family members who would rescue Jews from the Nazi concentration camps. There's a story of her father and her and a conversation that they had. And her father came into her bedroom and sat on the edge of her bed one night and said to her, Corey, when you and I go to Amsterdam, when, do, when will I give you the ticket for the train? And so she paused and she thought for a moment. She says, well, I suppose right before we get on the train. He says, exactly. And our wise father in heaven knows when we are going to need things too. Don't run out ahead of him. When the time comes that some of us will have to die, you will look into your heart and find the strength you need just in time. Have you ever looked at someone else's journey and thought, I could never do that? Of course you couldn't because he didn't give you the grace you need in that moment. But when your time comes, Whatever the struggle, whatever the challenge, his mercy will be new for you in that moment. His, because of his great love and because of his compassions, then he will provide the mercy you need for that day exactly when you need it. This is what God will do for us. God is good because he doesn't consume us. God is good because he provides the mercy you need for each and every day. And God is good because of who he is. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. I want to just also have your mind drop down to verse 31. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion so great is his unfailing love. He does, he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. I was really struck by this because he says, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. The, the original translation from what I understand is this, is this, that it's not in his heart to bring grief or affliction. It's not in the heart of God. We get a peek, if you like, into the very, behind the curtain, into the very heart of Almighty God. And the, 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 the writer says, it's not in the heart of God to bring grief or affliction willingly on anyone. And he says, therefore, this God, this multi-dimensional covenant-keeping love of God, this God who has mercies on those, on his people, even though they deserve to be consumed, this God who not only provides mercy, but provides mercy day after day after day. This God, this God is my portion. This God, this God is my everything to me. This God is all that I need. This God this God here, this God is my life. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I'm faced with incredible problems. 
trials that come into my life, into my family, into my marriage, into my home, into my church, but I will wait for him. I will wait for this God. I won't try to answer all the problems. I won't try to answer all the questions. I will sit at his feet and I will wait on him. I will wait with patience. I will wait with confidence. I will wait with assurance. And when God wants to explain things to me, then I will be ready. And if God chooses not to explain things to me, I will simply ask him for the ability to believe him and to trust him. And I will do that too. But there is one thing that is non-negotiable. There is one thing that cannot change. There is one thing that cannot be denied. And and that is that God is faithfulness. And great is his faithfulness. The hymn goes, you know, pardon for sin and a peace that endureth, thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Right? Is that what we need? Strength for today and hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine and 10,000 beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faith. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Let us pray. Father, we are not deserving of your faithfulness. We are deserving of your wrath and your punishment, and yet you, in your grace and your loving kindness, have showed us mercy, not only in our conversion, but every single morning, you give us new mercies for what we need each day. And so, Father, we humbly come before you and offer our thanks. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.